Good afternoon. We're speeding through September. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, September 29th, 2021 on your public radio station KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellums. On our show today, how the pandemic has affected women differently than men, research at the University of Arkansas offers some insight, and Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports in about four minutes. Later, We'll continue our conversation with Nate Powell, who collaborated on the National Book Award-winning series, March, a three-volume set of graphic novels about the life of Congressman John Lewis. The Nate of Arkansan was at the Fayetteville Public Library earlier this month to record a conversation with us. Today, we'll hear him talk about the challenges of illustrating real acts of violence that occurred during the Civil Rights era. The Arkansas Department of Health counts 800 new cases of COVID-19 diagnosed in the most recent 24 hours of testing, about 600 fewer than the same day last week. Hospitalizations dropped again by 26 patients, and active cases were further reduced by almost 650 in the last 24 hours. The ADH reports 21 newly confirmed deaths in that same report. There were more than 9,400 doses of vaccine administered in Arkansas on Monday. Governor Asa Hutchinson says about a third of those shots were booster shots. And Governor Asa Hutchinson, Arkansas First Lady Susan Hutchinson, and Arkansas Secretary of Health Dr. Jose Romero all received booster shots yesterday before the governor began his weekly press briefing devoted to the state's response to the virus. Governor Hutchinson says he's pleased there are now booster shots for certain Arkansans, but he says there are still many residents who need to get first shots. If you have not received your first dose of the vaccine, please get it. It is critically important to you and your health, but also to what we're trying to accomplish as a state in community resistance. Uh, And so you can see that we've added fully immunized another 3,200. So that's uh, encouraging that we need to do even increasing those numbers. There are now 1.3 million Arkansans fully vaccinated. The Northwest Arkansas Council will host a pop-up vaccination clinic Friday for first, second, and for those eligible booster shots of the Pfizer vaccine. The clinic at J.B. Hunt headquarters in Lowell will be from 8 until 4 Friday. Booster shots are available only for certain people. That includes people 65 and older and people 18 through 64 with underlying medical conditions that place them at higher risk of serious complications from the virus. The Arkansas electorate appears to be divided on the job performance of the state legislature. A poll from Talk Business and Politics and Hendricks College of 916 Arkansas voters shows 46.5% approval for the job the legislature is doing. That's 9% of respondents saying they strongly approve, 37.5% somewhat approve. And then 47% of those responding disapprove, including 28% saying they strongly disapprove. The Cherokee Nation is reporting a total payment of more than $75 million in the Cherokee Nation's case against drug manufacturers regarding an opioid diversion case. Exact itemized details of the settlement are not yet released, but the total payment does represent the largest settlement in Cherokee Nation history. The payment is to be spread over six and a half years, still pending claims against Walmart, Walgreens, and CVS. And the Arkansas Razorback women's basketball season will now open about 24 hours later than originally scheduled. The U of A announced today the opener against Tarleton State is now scheduled for Wednesday, November 10th in Bud Walton Arena. The university also announced the lone exhibition game for the women's basketball team will be November 5th against the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, that also in Bud Walton Arena. 
This is Ozarks at Large. After the United States reacted in early 2020 to prevent the spread of COVID-19, Hema Zamaro, a professor at the University of Arkansas, saw an opportunity to research how the pandemic was having an impact on the lives of women compared to men. Her pandemic research and more is now helping to inform federal and state policy. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Hema Zamaro is a professor and 21st Century Endowed Chair in Teacher Quality in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. She teaches economic methods for education policy. She's also an adjunct senior economist at University of Southern California's Center for Economic and Social Research, which early last year, as the pandemic triggered lockdowns and remote learning, surveyed in both English and Spanish 6,800 of respondents every two weeks to measure their life experience. With USC colleagues Francisco Perez Arce and Maria Prados, she co-authored a research brief titled Gender Differences in the Impact of COVID-19. And we wanted to see how the pandemic was affecting differently men and women. Um, back in April, May 2020, was one out of three working moms. They, they were the only one in the household that were taking care of the kids, uh, providing educational support when schools were closed, and that compared with one out of ten dads. Then we followed them over time, and we saw that in the fall, things didn't get better. If anything, moms were even taking more responsibility in the fall. It was about 45% of working moms said they were the only ones providing childcare and help with schoolwork, and the proportion of that remained the same. With only one out of 10 men reporting helping with childcare and schoolwork. So um, for those who were the only one providing childcare for the kids, we saw an increased probability of declaring that they have to reduce working hours or uh, more transitions out of employment. Um, and finally, we also look at the, how they were coping in terms of mental health. And we saw that also moms suffered, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, they suffered the highest levels of psychological distress during the crisis. Zamaro says psychological distress continued for women respondents with children compared to men as well as childless couples as they tracked respondents over time. The research is designed to inform policymakers at the federal, state, and local level, which is bearing fruit. The U.S. Department of Treasury cited the research in a ruling implementing the Coronavirus State Fiscal Recovery Fund and the Coronavirus Local Fiscal Recovery Fund established under the American Rescue Plan Act. And a Hawaiian county cited the findings in a resolution urging equity, inclusion, and social and economic justice principles in COVID-related recovery initiatives. I'm happy to see this. I think for what I have seen in the media and what I see coming out, I think there is a 
better fo- there is a higher focus and a better understanding of the challenges that the working mothers, especially mothers of color uh, and mothers from lower economic background, have been dealing with during this crisis. So I'm hopeful that some changes, uh, it seems that it's making some impact. Further into the pandemic, Zamaro and colleagues surveyed a 1,000 teachers to measure preferences about remaining in classrooms building on previous research. In March 2021, we, we, we collected data through the, through the RAN Corporation. They have a nationally representative sample of teachers. And uh, we, we managed to recruit uh, for our study uh, above 1,000 teachers that took our survey. And we were able to compare the results for these teachers with uh, some questions of the survey of teachers that we have collected back in March 2020. So we have the two points, pre-COVID and after COVID. And what we find is that during the pandemic, teachers have become less certain that they will work a full career in the classroom. Zamaro says a high proportion of teachers have considered leaving their vocation, especially those approaching retirement, Due to the pandemic, the Brookings Institution, a nonprofit public policy organization based in Washington, D.C., featured the findings by Zamaro and her co-authors on their website. The team was also invited by Brookings to author an article on the subject. But now the situation is changing again this school year due to the Delta variant and children under 12 remaining unvaccinated for now. Maybe there will be more interruptions. Um in the classroom, having to teach the kids that are quarantined and the teach that, the, to teach the kids that are in the classroom. So it's still an open question how this is going to affect teachers. Presently, Zamaro and colleagues are also looking at racial disparities in education during the pandemic. So what we saw early in the pandemic is that African-American uh, and Hispanic kids were attending much more in remote than uh, white kids. So we did a study to try to understand why these differences. This is because maybe they live in areas where schools were not open for in-person more, or is it because they have health concerns or uh, political views? What is affecting this? And we found that it's a combination of all these factors. Zamaro hopes this new research will help policymakers make better decisions for those being unequally affected by the coronavirus crisis. The pandemic has had this effect of basically showing us all these inequalities that we already had in society. I don't think, um, you know, like gender differences were already there before. I think these racial differences to access to quality education, they were there. And now the pandemic has shown that very clear in our eyes. So I hope it's a moment to open the eyes and start thinking about all these issues that are there in society and make progress to see what what are approaches so we could fix them. In a U of A press release about Zamaro's scholarship being nationally cited, she said the pandemic posed great difficulties for her as well, but conducting her research helped her to better cope. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Still to come on this Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large, we continue our conversation with Nate Powell. He collaborated on the National Book Award-winning series of graphic novels titled March about the life of Congressman John Lewis and the civil rights struggle of the 1960s and beyond. He was at the Fayetteville Public Library earlier this month. That's ahead 
as is a conversation about redistricting. And is there such a thing as a perfect redistricting map? That's in our second half hour on this edition of Ozarks at Large. The Museum of Native American History presents the fifth annual Cultural Celebration, Indigenuity, Building a Bridge to the Future, October 7th through the 9th. This three-day virtual celebration will feature astronauts, authors, artists, musicians, and an indigenous panel to share the importance of traditional knowledge and innovation. M-O-N-A-H dot U-S for more. Good afternoon. This is Ozarks at Large for the 29th day of September 2021, and this is the penultimate day of the KUAF, the annual KUAF Fall on-air fundraiser. Thanks so much to everyone who has contributed so far. We do appreciate it. It's because of you that we can continue to bring you great public radio. 1A, Fresh Air, Ozarks at Large, All Things Considered, Morning Edition. The list goes on. Thank you, everyone who has contributed. If you haven't yet, you can do so right now in this next to last day at supportkuaf.com. And to give you that nudge, here come great friends of KUAF, one more time, Bill Elder and Karen Freeman. Bill and Karen of Fayville have upped their specific hour challenge for this next-to-last day of Ozarks at Large during the fundraiser to $350. So if in this hour we can collectively raise $350, Bill Elder and Karen Freeman will match that. It means $700 for KUAF and public radio in your life. You can make your contribution right now at support. KUAF.com in any amount. All contributions up to a total of $350 this hour will be matched by Bill and Karen. Delight, surprise, information, inspiration, essential ingredients to our lives in the fall of 2021 as we seek not to just reimagine a new and better normal, but to shape it and build it. And as we do that, we think KUAF is more relevant than ever. That's why your generous financial support for the vital reporting of KUAF is now more critical than ever. The greatest power at KUAF is not to inform, inspire, surprise, or delight, though. The greatest power is how listener support can energize all the power of public media to be a city force for progress and for public good. The greatest power, therefore, is your power to support KUAF. You can act right now at supportkuaf.com. More than three-fourths of our budget comes from right here, listeners like you. You can make the contribution in the amount that you choose at supportkuaf.com. Also at supportkuaf.com, you can uh, become a sustaining member if you'd like. That allows you to earmark a specific amount for from a bank draft or from a credit or debit card or if you're a University of Arkansas employee, payroll deduction a certain small amount perhaps every month that then adds up over the calendar year to a more uh, significant amount of support than you can make perhaps right now. But if you'd like to make a one-time uh, contribution, you can do that as well. And again, all uh, contribution amounts during this noon edition of Ozarks at Large go toward the Bill Elder and Karen Freeman uh, challenge of $350. So we're trying to raise that before the end of today's Ozarks at Large. We do that one contribution at a time. You can make your contribution right now at supportkuaf.com. And from all of the listeners who've already given, thank you very much.
This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us. You can listen to us on your schedule, by the way, when you subscribe to our free podcast edition of the show through any major podcast distributor. Earlier this month, the annual gathering of the groups, a collection of Northwest Arkansas-based book clubs, took place at the Fayetteville Public Library with author and artist Nate Powell as the guest speaker. Powell, along with Andrew Aiden and the late Congressman John Lewis, created the National Book Award-winning series of graphic novels, March, about the life of Congressman Lewis. Powell, an Arkansas native who now lives in Indiana, is the first cartoonist to receive the National Book Award. Nate Powell sat down with me in the new event center at the library for a conversation and to take questions from the audience. Yesterday, we heard about how the project began. Today, we continue our conversation as Nate Powell explains how working on the project provided foreshadowing about some of the conversations we're having in 2021. He says a visit to his local comic shop in Bloomington, Indiana years ago was a preview of conflicts to come. The owner was like, oh, yeah, hey, I got to tell you something. There is this middle school librarian who came up from southern Indiana to to buy some books for school and she was there for a three-day weekend and uh, you know I was helping her out and stuff basically by the end of the second day she had never mentioned or picked up a copy of March book one she came in the third day and so the, the shop owner was like oh yeah have you heard of this book March blah 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 and basically the librarian stopped him and was like, oh, I know, but if I put, if I get March and I put that on my shelves, I will get enough parental complaints that I may get fired. And up until that instant, there was a part of me that took for granted that because this was a first-person nonfiction historical account about nonviolence in the civil rights movement, I thought that it checked off so many boxes that were unassailable um, that there was a, to a large degree, I saw the project as being generally uncontroversial. And so I had interest in drawing out other elements and, and sort of expanding on the conflict brewing within the movement which we all shared that and we all developed that over the course of March books two and three. But how wrong was I as soon as we started hearing about basically like the, the concerns of gatekeepers in a positive way, the positive gatekeepers, the librarians, the teachers, the bookstore owners, and recognize that there are people that make books like March influential and successful because they put themselves at varying degrees of risk to stick their neck out for those books. Uh, and that was a real game changer for how we approached the material and what we needed to do to protect it. What a great place to hear that story too in this library. You bet. The responsibility that you and Mr. Aiden had with Congressman Lewis's life, I can't imagine as you're creating this. Did you have conversations, the three of you, about the sheer responsibility of telling this story? I, I don't think we really explicitly focused or, or really commiserate. I mean, Andrew and I have certainly spent <laughs> right. years, uh, yeah, propping each other up and commiserating about that and how to do our best work and how to protect the legacy of John Lewis's story, but also how to protect the legacy of the movement. But 
with Congressman Lewis concerned, uh, a lot of it was by developing trust early on, um, like the public, the public persona of John Lewis is who John Lewis was. And he really, I, I'm very thankful that he is someone, he was someone who immediately put me at ease, someone who does not make assumptions uh, preemptively, uh, and someone who, who gives you space to try, fail, try. But uh, especially during more difficult passages or when I really feel the pressure of getting it right, I would really, or, or even questioning my own role as, as the artist to make this happen, I would repeatedly have to come back around to embracing that John Lewis chose me to tell his story through his eyes and in his words. My, he chose me to do that job. And so a lot of the anxiety that would come with, you know, the pressures and responsibilities of the job is really, so much of that is, you know, just kind of like trying to make it about me. And so it was a really good centering thing to be like, this is not about me. This is about me doing this job the best that I can do it. Like, it's not like, who cares how I feel, but right. yeah, who cares? Like, <laughs> this is the job I signed up for. It has nothing to do with me. When I was a kid, there, were, there was this uh, line of comic books called Classics Illustrated. Oh, yeah. All right, so they would take Moby Dick or Tale of Two Cities, and they would, you know, I guess the idea was make it more palatable for yeah. an eight or nine-year-old like me. It's like Dell or Charlton Comics. I, yeah. yeah, Charlton, I think, right. The one thing about those is it was very formal artwork. Beautiful, detailed, but it felt still away from me, like I was detached. This is anything but. This is warm. This is welcoming and takes you in. And is that something you consciously think about? Because you want this history to live with an eight or nine or 10-year-old reader. Do you think about that? Yes, actually, Classics Illustrated was, was sort of at the forefront of that... <laughs> that uh, concern I was talking about that was early on uh, about what would make this yeah, a dry nonfiction account of history. Um, so yeah, a lot of those were done during the 1950s and into the 60s. So they were done in the what's known as the Silver Age of Comics, um, <laughs> which produced such beautiful, graceful work, but was really defined by using a six-panel grid with a lot of regularity, with caption text at the top of every panel, with text first, then image. And so like real, this is where we're about to get into some Marvel Comics business here. <laughs> this is really where Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Steve Ditko helped destroy that dominance of text. I mean, not, not completely, but really helped make more of a dance between word and image in comics in the 1960s. Uh, so, yeah, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story was made in 1956, and it's a, just such a beautiful, graceful book. But at the same time, it is very much a 1950s house-style book. Um, so, yes, like, those were basically just examples floating around where I knew that if one reason why I 
I was lucky enough to draw March was because of my storytelling style, I needed to embrace the way I already drew comics instead of trying to make March something uh, that was not the way I would already do a book. So uh, particularly in March book one, because so much of it is of subjective experiences and is of sensory impressions and sense memories, like, that's my wheelhouse anyway. Like most of, most of my solo books, most of my fiction work is really focused on an intimate perspective to someone's very subjective experiences and perceptions. So once I realized that, yes, it was possible and appropriate to step into young John Lewis's shoes and look around his world through his eyes, I would naturally draw comics in the way that I had, in, in a way I had developed over many years. And, and it helped that like, when I was, like a lot of this starts when John Lewis is like six. And when I was reading his memoir, Walking with the Wind, 20 pages in, I was, I was so struck by the gravity and intensity with which he viewed the world around him. And one reason was because when I was six, uh, I viewed the world with precisely that same level of gravity and intensity. Uh, also, like, the ditches and woods and stuff where I used to play were a quarter mile from one end of the old Troy Highway, and his house was on the other end of the old Troy Highway, 47 miles away. But I felt, like, I felt this... There's a sense of time travel. Like, I know what grass is there. I know what trees are there. I know what the road and the dirt are going to look like. Uh, it was just a really optimal way to ease into someone else's shoes. Is it at all difficult to draw violence or someone using a racial epithet against someone that you know was real or someone you may have met? Is that a challenge to draw? Yes. Yes, it, uh, it takes its toll. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. I guess to talk about the physical violence first, again, this is something that I didn't think out fully before I started drawing March Book One. And this includes, I basically like, uh, I did a book immediately before March called The Silence of Our Friends, which is also mostly a nonfiction account of the writer's life as a kid outside of Houston in the mid-60s against a backdrop of a chapter of civil rights movement history. Um, and a lot of the same issues and themes are approached. That was different, however. Uh, I, 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 was, I wasn't holding myself as accountable to the reference and research I should have been, which I was later for March. But as a comic book reader, like as a comic book nerd, I'm really, I'm really familiar and comfortable with visual depictions of physical violence through comics. And in fact, I'd say that American superhero comics and the ways in which physical violence and conflict are depicted have sort of set the the ways in which it's approached across pop culture at large. I think a lot of the, the storytelling methods uh, and a lot of the framing, a lot of the directorial aspects that are in movies and TV 
and animation, a lot of it really it goes back to Jack Kirby. Like it, so much of it just comes from mid-century American comics. And I took so much of that for granted until finally there, yeah, there's a real, a real person and a real face um, at the other end of that fist. Um, and so ultimately it was one of these things where, you know, I would develop phys you know, physical repulsion at having to draw a lot of acts of violence. Um, and I'd spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, some of the more disturbing moments. And thankfully, I think that that process really resensitized me to depictions of violence. And a lot of that coincides with becoming a dad and the ways in which your brain changes in parenthood. And like, so around, yeah, around 2012, like I started losing my appetite for my beloved horror genre in movies and TV. And, uh, and uh, a lot of that initially was due to parenthood and changes happening in my brain. But that really, the door really closed on it doing March books two and three. Uh, and a lot of it is like, again, I've got a job to do, and so I need to find ways to get it done, but I also need to listen to my own voice. If I'm being horrified and repulsed by this act of violence on the page, even though I'm directing it, I know what I'm doing and I'm making it happen, then I'm doing something right because I'm, re I, I'm reintroducing the repulsive nature of violence, particularly coming from the context of not even realizing how desensitized I was to its depictions throughout my entire life. Um, and so, yeah, every time that I would get that feeling, uh, what I would take away from it was that, you know, there are certain parts of March which, if I do my job correctly, should be taken as horror. Uh, and so there are moments, like in particular, the Montgomery Greyhound bus station uh, massacre riot in March book two. That was, that was very difficult to draw. Uh, and a lot of it is like, you know, reminding myself of my place, like how difficult, you know, like if I think it's difficult to draw, like who am I to even express that when I'm sitting here in 2013 in my cozy chair drawing it? Um, but it sort of like reactivates this very human perspective on not only the victims of violence, but the perpetrators. Uh, one of the panels that messed me up the most in drawing March was from that scene in Montgomery in March book two. There is, there was a three or four year old boy who was there with his parents attacking the Freedom Riders. And Jim's Zwerg had already been knocked unconscious by the dad, but the dad was holding unconscious Jim Zwerg's head between his knees, and mom and dad were encouraging their four-year-old kid to scratch and claw at his face and eyes. And... Uh, and, you know, as I was like powering through and drawing the sequence, you know, like you can't help but to think, who is this kid? This is a real kid. These are his real parents. Like this, you know, this kid would be, this kid was born in 1958 or 57. 
this kid would be in his early 60s now, be like, he might no longer be with us. He's probably still alive. So if he is, then you're like, what does he remember of this moment? Has he blocked it out? Um, if he hasn't, what, what has he carried with him? What does he remember about his parents? And what, what does he remember about his parents in the context of this moment? Does he, you know, carry a lot of stuff, a lot of baggage against his parents? Or does he not? Like, there's no way, and it's kind of inappropriate to like pry further to get to any answers about that. But it's just horrifying once you recognize that this three-year-old, this four-year-old is somebody who's still with us out there today. Um, in March book one, when we're getting to the murderers of Emmett Till being uh, let off the hook and then because of double jeopardy laws, confessing to the murders in an interview for Look Magazine, uh, I was doing my own backup research uh, outside of the research that I was given, uh, and then I realized that one of the, one of the three murderers uh, owned an auto garage in a town in Kentucky where my wife's extended family lived, and that he was 96 years old, at the time. Um, but then like, it was just horrifying to recognize this guy's still alive. I can find his business. I know where his business is. I know the town already where he lives. And he definitely 100% murdered this 14-year-old kid and got away with it publicly. Um, so like, yeah, the, the, these are the moments where you just have to kind of like pet your cat <laughs> and like eat a snack and then just recognize, like it's been a long process of like figuring out care practices to be able to, to do the best work you can do. Read these if you haven't. Read anything with Nate Powell's name on it. Congratulations on the well-deserved awards through your career. Thanks for, even if temporarily, coming back to Arkansas. And thank you Bet. for your time this afternoon. Always happy to be and here. thank you all for coming. Thanks, y'all. Nate Powell is one of the co-creators of the National Book Award winning series of graphic novels, March each about the life of Congressman John Lewis. He spoke to the annual gathering of the groups at the Fayetteville Public Library earlier this month. KUAF is supported by Little Guys Movers, a community-oriented company rooted in creating better lives for customers and employees alike, providing jobs and serving customers for over 28 years. More than just a moving company littleguys.com for information. KUAF is giving away two tickets to see Melissa Etheridge in concert Sunday, October 10th at Walton Arts Center. This Grammy Award winner produced hits such as I'm the Only One, Come to My Window, Bring Me Some Water, and more. The winner announced during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large on Friday, October 8th. Registration and information available at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large, just ahead on our show on this Wednesday, how legislators are trying to work together to come up with new congressional redistricting maps, something they have to do, according to the U.S. Constitution, every 10 years after census results. Daniel Breen from our partner station KUAR will lead that conversation just ahead. Speaking of collaboration, we just heard a moment ago conversation with Nate Powell. He collaborated with Andrew Aiden and Congressman John Lewis on the National Book Award-winning series, March. And I sense a theme here because I'm going to talk about collaboration between you and KUAF. We collaborate very well and have done so for more than three and a half decades. It's with your 
work that we are able to do our work. KUAF is a nonprofit public radio station. More than 75% of our budget comes from you, listeners just like you, who make financial contributions. You can make your collaborative contribution in any amount because we all work together, right? We're all collaborating right now at supportkuaf.com. And it's working during this noon edition of Ozarks at Large because Bill Elder and Karen Freeman have collaborated with us and issued a specific to this hour $350 challenge. So Bill and Karen of Fayetteville, thank you very much for one last bit of encouragement to listeners to go to supportkuaf.com and help us build together to the $350 challenge. That will mean $700 for KUAF and Ozarks at large. KUAF brings you the big picture, but also the intimate focus, the stories that affect thousands, millions, or perhaps just one. Because what matters in any story is the human element. To better understand an event, we have to realize its human impact. We need to hear the perspective of those who are involved, even if they differ. In the rush to break a story, that human element can be often overlooked by commercial media. That's where public broadcasting excels. That's why KUAF is so important to you. It could be an international crisis. It could be a local dispute. KUAF will bring you the human element, the all-important human element perspective. You can make sure that continues with your gift of support in the amount that you choose right now. Make the contribution to KUAF at supportkuaf.com. And when you do, during this noon edition of Ozarks at Large for this Wednesday, Bill Elder and Karen Freeman have issued a $350 challenge. So the contributions up to that first $350 this hour are matched by Bill and Karen. And so we would uh, reach at least $700 raised during this next to last noon edition of Ozarks at Large during on our on-air fall fundraiser. That's right. We'll end tomorrow, Thursday, the last day of September. Support KUAF.com. The amount up to you. The method of contribution up to you. Thanks to Bill and Karen of Fayetteville for doing their part. Thank you if you've contributed. If you've been meaning to and you've been thinking about it, why not do it right now at supportkuaf.com. And thank you. Says Ozarks at Large. Arkansas lawmakers today are beginning the process of redrawing the state's four U.S. congressional districts. Daniel Breen, with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock, spoke with Heather Yates, associate professor of American politics at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway, about what to expect from this year's redistricting session. Redistricting is the process that states undergo every 10 years to literally redraw the geographic electoral boundaries of the state's congressional districts and on a state level, it's state Senate and state house districts. And the reason why the states do this is because they are commanded by article one of the U S constitution to take a count of the population. So every 10 years we take the census and then the state legislature uses that census data then to reapportion um, the congressional districts to make sure that every person 
in the United States, living in the United States, has representation in the House of Representatives. I know that legislators are, are coming back to the Capitol and they'll be proposing new maps and, and I assume voting on it. But I guess when what is the process from from soup to nuts, I guess, until we have an, an actual new map? In the state of Arkansas, we have a legislature dominant process. So that means that the legislature is charged with conducting the business of receiving the census data. There's a really complicated uh, algorithm or calculation, rather, that the federal government undertakes to tell the states how many residents should be residing in the congressional districts to account for population adjustments. And the U.S. Census data reveals that Arkansas has had almost 3% population growth, 2.9% population growth to be exact. And where we have seen the population consolidation in the state of Arkansas is in Northwest Arkansas, is around Fort Smith, is most definitely around the Little Rock area and um, the Jonesboro area. We've also seen population shift from the southern part of the state um, northward um, in terms of population density. Then it gets political because there's a strategy of redrawing those physical electoral boundaries, right? Um, We know that the party in control or power in the state legislature will redraw those electoral boundaries to protect its political and incumbent advantage. Where the battle is really shaping up, and it's being characterized by the classic fissures between this urban and rural regions. And so what Republicans are doing is they're proposing adjustments to the 2010 map that rope in or extend two particular congressional districts, the third and the second, extend those boundaries out into more rural counties and are trying to um, propose boundaries that split um, particular counties like Pulaski is the battleground county. Um, Sebastian is a battleground county because why they, they host the more densely populated areas. And so what Republicans are proposing is to rope in some of those more rural counties because why rural areas in the region of Arkansas and outside of Arkansas favor Republican representation. They're very traditionalistic. Democrats fear that the Republican legislature are trying to dilute the urban concentration because they lean Democratic, more densely populated areas favor Democrats. And so that's what the debate we're seeing shape up is is classically defined by the urban rule differentiation. It's interesting to see the the maps proposed by Democrats all seem to have somewhat the same uh, tactic, I guess you can call it. They kind of include Pulaski County and then extend a big district on out to like the Arkansas Delta and Pine Bluff. Mm-hmm. The maps that are likely to get approval, it's going to come down to critical mass, right? Because the Republicans are in control of this this process. They have a supermajority in the legislature and the process is a legislature dominant um, endeavor. And so, of course, yes, the Democrats are, are counter offering the Republican proposals by putting forth proposals that include more um, voters that favor Democratic candidates. The Democrats want congressional districts for the next 10 years in which there can be a competitive Democratic candidate. If the districts are drawn in a way that it locks out competition, then the, it's going to be really hard for the Democratic Party in, on the ground in Arkansas to really engage and grow party building activities, which is why the Democratic senators and the Democratic representatives in the House 
are putting forth those proposals. A lot of people probably are listening to this or probably have heard the term gerrymandering as Mm -hmm. maybe sort of that's kind of turned into a shorthand of of what we're describing now. But what what, what is the difference between gerrymandering and what we're describing now and and sort of what guardrails exist that are going to keep the lawmakers in line and prevent them from actually doing that? The most guidance that states received on the process of redrawing congressional districts came from the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The VRA Act of 1965 outlines pretty much like four distinct um, points of the guidelines, right? One, that the district must be compact and contiguous. So those are two different pieces of guidance that the boundary must be one continuous line and the district must be geographically compact. Um, then the next two points of guidance is that the states cannot deliberately um, divide a community of interest. And that's a lot of language that we're seeing coming out of the Republicans right now, um, is that they are focused, or they are presenting the argument that the rural areas of Arkansas are communities of interest, farmers. Um, the Democrats are going to argue um, the, the counterpoint that the uh, communities of interest reside for them in you know, these populated areas, these densely populated areas in the Delta. And lastly, states cannot be motivated on the notion of um, either concentrating or diluting racial communities. Um, And so that's what we call creating a majority-minority district, right? A majority district of marginalized minority voters. And that's ultimately really how the Supreme Court has boiled down the guidance, is those four points. The legal process is called reapportionment, where we just redistribute the boundaries to accommodate for population growth. To do so with the politicized or the political goal in mind of protecting the party in power's electoral advantage, that's where we get into gerrymandering. And that's also what produces some really oddly shaped districts across the nation. Well, the question I have on my piece of paper is, is there such a thing as a perfect map? Um, I don't know how you'd want to um, <laughs> tackle that, but it seems like, you know, in politics, like many things, there there's more of a compromise, like there's not ever really a solution that no one party is or no two parties are very happy about. There's there's sort of give and take. There's a few other states um, out there that basically outsource reapportionment to a third-party nonpartisan firm that um, employs redistricting software. Basically, they input the population data, and then the software proposes the actual physical boundaries. And Iowa is probably the closest thing to finding a near-equitable electoral map for its congressional districts, and it's because they actually take it out of the hands of the legislature. Heather Yates is an associate professor of American politics at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. She spoke with Daniel Breen from our partner station KUAR in Little Rock. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, I'll speak with Roby Brock from our partner Talk Business and Politics about the results we're seeing from the Talk Business and Politics Hendricks College poll regarding approval ratings for the Arkansas legislature, the United States Supreme Court, and more. That conversation on tomorrow's show at noon and 7, and anytime you'd like, if you ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. KUAF is supported by Golan and Sharon CPAs, providing tax and accounting services to businesses and individuals. Located at 64 West Colt Square in Fayetteville, 521-0451 for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. 
and this is the next and last day of KUAF's annual fall on-air fundraiser. We have a few minutes left in this program, and this hour we're trying to collectively raise $350 to match a $350 challenge made by Bill Elder and Karen Freeman of Fayetteville. So we've got a few minutes left on that. We've got a few hours left for you to make your commitment, your financial commitment in the amount that you choose to KUAF at supportkuaf.com. Like so many kinds of media these days, radio listening is not what it was 10, even five years ago, maybe even two years ago. You don't have to wait for your favorite program to come on the radio. Whether it's Ozarks at Large or Morning Edition, you can listen to your favorite program when you're ready online or on the KUAF app or with the Ozarks at Large podcast. KUAF's only able to make these programs available to you at KUAF.com or through podcasts because of the support of individual listeners just like you. It's hard to believe for someone who's been in radio as long as I have, but you don't even need a radio to listen to public radio anymore. KUAF's mission is to inform, to educate, to entertain, and to challenge you every day with the very best in news, music, and stories from your neighbors and from across the world. But it's also our mission to bring you the news where you are when you need it. Your support makes podcasts and on-demand radio possible. If you give now and keep the best of public radio available on the radio and everywhere else, we certainly would appreciate it. You can give now at supportkuaf.com. When you do so, Bill Elder and Karen Freeman will match up to $350. They've offered that challenge for this noon edition of Ozarks at Large. High-quality radio, the ability to take it anywhere, an extra little nudge from Bill Elder and Karen Freeman. If that's not enough to push you, we're going to call in a big name. Hello, I'm Dolly Parton. I'm a singer and songwriter, and I'm passionate about education, too. I want every child to learn to read and have books in their home. Learning how to read and knowing what's going on in the world are both important. And NPR removes barriers to good information so you can learn whenever and however you choose to listen. I believe everybody ought to know what's going on, and public radio makes it possible to stay in the know without paying a dime, unless, of course, you want to. When you listen to NPR, you get facts, and you hear all kinds of perspectives, and it's only possible because people like you choose to support it. So if you're able, please make a donation now to this NPR station. My favorite part of that is when she says, I'm Dolly Parton, singer and songwriter. Dolly Parton on the bandwagon for NPR, talking about the value NPR has in education and learning and reading and books. If you appreciate those roles that public radio plays, not just in your life, but in your neighbors' lives and the lives of people really around the world, please remember we're able to help spread the programs of NPR and KUAF with your support. In fact, I think we could say only because of your support. We don't go a day without thinking about that, without talking about that inside the Carver Center for Public Radio. Thank you very much for allowing us to do this for 36 plus years. If it's your turn to contribute, you can do so right now at supportkuaf.com. It takes just a couple of minutes. There are 
many ways that you can contribute and, of course, many amounts because we leave that up to you. And one last reminder, Bill Elder and Karen Freeman of Fayetteville do have that $350 challenge that we're trying to meet before the end of today's noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Make your contribution, if you're able, right now at supportkuaf.com. And from all of us who work here and all of your fellow listeners who've already given, contributed, thank you very much. This weekend, there are some slight changes to KUAF's Saturday lineup. Last week, the NPR quiz show Ask Me Another produced its final show after nearly 10 years of broadcasting, and that will mean some alterations for us. It's been a minute with Sam Sanders. We'll now scoot up an hour to 10 o'clock each Saturday and directly follow Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And Terry Gross and Fresh Air Weekend will join the Saturday schedule at 11 a.m. So now you can hear Terry Gross at 11 a.m., six days a week. Our schedule for the entire week and weekend can be found at KUAF.com. And don't forget, you can listen to KUAF not only on 91.3, but on the newly updated free KUAF app anywhere in the world at KUAF.com and by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and all along the Illinois River. You can listen to KUAF anytime, anywhere with the free KUAF app. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors to our program today included Jacqueline Froelich and Daniel Breen from our partner station KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock in Central Arkansas. Sherry Ottaviano is KUAF's membership director. It makes her smile when you contribute at supportkuaf.com. Also, thank you to the entire staff at the Fayetteville Public Library and Chris Moody for recording our conversation with Nate Powell. Soon you'll be able to see the entire conversation in its entirety by going to the Fayetteville Public Library website. We'll keep you up to date on that. Our Ozarks at Large theme is titled First to Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl is still often performing live around 4 o'clock in the afternoon on weekdays, at least 4 o'clock our time. Uh on his Facebook and Instagram feeds. You can hear our most recent show by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Be well.